Hello, all you wonderful listeners. Steve here. I thought I'd better warn you a little bit about this episode. It's a bit geekier than my typical episode because I'm talking with a couple of friends about the role of a handful of technologies in what's being now called the data economy. If you're interested in 5G, Internet of Things, edge computing, and what they all mean, as well as the whole universe surrounding your personal data and how it's used in business today, especially in things like social media, then you might want to stay tuned. It's not a technology discussion. It's really a business conversation. But I just wanted to let you know that we go full on Sheldon Cooper a couple of times in this particular show, but briefly. So the episode, two of my friends in the tech space join me for this particular show. Doug Stanley, the founder and CEO of Neo Labs, and Glenn Almendinger, the founder and CEO of Harbor Research. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm uh, Glenn Almendinger. I'm the founder and president of Harbor Research. Well, thank you for having me. I'm Doug Stanley. I'm the crazy founder and CEO of Neo Labs. I think our claim to fame is we saw the need for edge computing early, and uh, we were crazy enough to pursue it. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I look forward to this conversation. Excellent. Thank you. Let's start with the basics. So, so let me just let me just lay down some facts here. So between 2011 and 2020, the volume of data that was produced and then harvested for use in what is now becoming known as the data economy grew from 1.8 zettabytes. That's a lot of zeros to 59 zettabytes. Now, by 2025, just a few years from now, that number is expected to grow from 59 to 175 zettabytes. That's an enormous hockey stick kind of curve. So let me ask you, gentlemen, what, in your opinion, is the so-called data economy? And Doug, why don't I start with you? That is a massive question that I could I could spend a, probably an hour rambling on about. But to me, to me, the data economy is probably perceived differently because nothing in our being has been about monetizing the use of other people's data. Let's call that the surveillance economy. We focused very early on taking the control of data and moving it as close to the source as possible. Many think that is edge, edge computing. Uh, and we started that in the uh, you know 2008 timeframe. So for over 10 years, that's been our focus, distributing computation. But that question actually, actually brings upon a story, and I'll, I'll tell this briefly. I was taken into a meeting uh, with a person who claimed to be the head of Google's uh, smart city initiative. And so the first question I asked at the time, you know, innocently is what is Google's smart city initiative? And I'm not talking about the Toronto sidewalk labs initiative. He says, well, that's a good question. We don't know what that is, but I'll tell you what we do know is we own more data on the movement of humans and the movement of cars than anybody in the world. We should be able to figure out how to monetize that in this thing they call smart cities. So I think that to me, smart cities up until I think now we've, we've, we've hit a chasm. It's been about the collection of data and then figuring out how to monetize that and, you know, be damned with any, any sense of privacy and ethics and things like that. So to me, that's been the, that is a data economy. And I do think that's a look back. I do think the definition is going to change going forward. You know, your whole message about 
moving the point of contact, the point of the point of interaction, of engagement, farther and farther to the edge is crucial. And we're going to we're going to come to that in just a second. Glenn, what would you add to that definition? Well, I go back a half step and say I increasingly think there's at least two, if not three parallel economies that are evolving around data. The, I mean, the first is kind of our, our sense of today's traditional physical economy and kind of the way things have been. Uh, to your earlier point, there's this surveillance capitalism or surveillance economy that's kind of emerged. And, and frankly, I'm just saying there's a, a third algorithmic economy that's really invisible. It's almost like invisible commerce. And, uh, you know, the, the more things that can be processed out, you know, essentially in an autonomous context, I think is driving a huge amount of innovation that, that really not that many normal people see and understand as it's evolving. And I take that and dovetail with what Doug said. I, I think the thing that most people in the business world don't really understand is probably a lot less than half of the data required to inform the decisions and actions they take in their business will have to come from outside of their business. And um, I've always used the uh, child care or the early child learning analogy. We share because we care. <laughs> and so to some extent, we need a way to figure out how to make you know, even before we get to monetizing data, just the fact that we do need to um, share data in order to leverage things across ever more complex delivery chains and ecosystems and so forth. And and I just don't think our business culture fully grasps this yet other than intellectually. That's a really great point. And you, you brought up the issue of uh, the sort of surveillance economy. And Doug, you referred to that as well. One of the little phrases or aphorisms that I really like says, you know, we, we live in a world right now where everything is purportedly free, right? I mean, free applications, free music, free downloads, free everything. But what this aphorism says is when the product is free, beware, you are the product. There's a lot of sensitivity today around data privacy, confidentiality, the ownership of data, and this whole business of who owns the data and that your personal data being actually that monetizable resource that people are focusing on. I think that's at once very important, but I also think that it has some potential hazards associated with it that go right alongside the potential opportunities. So just opinion here, how should we be thinking about the sort of treatment of data as a monetizable resource that doesn't necessarily belong to the company or companies that are monetizing it. And Glenn, why don't I start with you on this one? Yeah, this is a, um, I mean, even just the basic question, who owns the data and and who rents the data and under what conditions and terms are we allowed to do such things? I mean, to me, the, the intersection or convergence of two fundamental enablers, <laughs> identity and policies around privacy is the thing that I, strongly believe we will need to automate so that, that, you know, whether I'm an individual, whether I'm a business entity or I'm a, you know, a partner to a company or otherwise, that, that, that there's some, a bit of automation and, 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 and self-organizing policies on how that, that stuff gets treated. And, but, but largely the, the, uh, shared data story or even the monetized data story is still wildly dependent upon, you know, trust. And um, and I don't think the mechanisms are really in place to really foster this. I think it all makes sense in a conceptual manner. It just needs to be more practically applied. 
Yeah, and I think, Steve, for us, it's it goes back to the vision around our data operations and our solution architecture is, is we know that, that you do not have to store every bit of data to create an analytic or, in our world, context, right? Data does not need to be stored to contextualize it. It can be done in flight. And the the exhaust from that transaction can be literally <laughs> converted to ether. It does not have to be stored. So where where I would like to see and what we've we've bet on is that we're going to begin a transition to what we call uh, on users' terms or or consumer configurable privacy. Now that doesn't mean clicking a box saying you accept to to the privacy terms that are being shoved down your throat, you know, vis-a-vis Facebook or anybody else. It means that you're able to agree to a contextualization relationship. And uh, and again, we say that because we know we can do that technically. So I think that that the reckoning needs to come from the powerhouses that control the movement of data and monetize the movement of data before that will happen. Or perhaps it's a regulatory matter. But I do believe that that for the real explosion of value to consumers, consumers are going to have be have to have to be empowered to configure and set their privileges. And maybe that's done on a case by case or or a transaction by transaction basis. That doesn't matter. Technically it doesn't matter. That does get you back to, you know, you need some kind of self-configuring or self-realizing of set of policies or means by which all that can be mediated, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, I um I like to share stories, right? I mean the story that comes to mind when the first time we ever met with a major telco, it's long enough. I'll just go ahead and say we met with Verizon and they watched us manipulate data, the data operations and and create context analytics in flight with no data storage and no data transmission. The reaction was afterwards, our culture will never accept that. And uh, of course, I, I pushed back a little bit. She says, no, you don't understand. If the movement of data isn't monetized, we have no interest whatsoever. And I think that's one of the hurdles that we have to we have to look at and get over as consumers, not just you know me as a as a somebody who's uh, helped design this and this platform to distribute computations, but as consumers, we're saying, you know, do we get that right? Do we have a choice? And of course, today we we don't, right? So. And since you opened that particular drawer of Pandora's box, Doug, <laughs> let's talk about. Let's talk about regulation for a second, because I think there's a lot of misconception about what regulation is and isn't. I think a lot of people see it as government overreach, as a punitive measure, as business stifling, et cetera. But the fact is that if you really dig into it and look into what it means, in theory, it's a measure that is taken to protect the consumers, to protect open markets, to protect uh, the way businesses operate, that kind of thing. So. I'm just curious, how should we be thinking about regulation? And I don't mean necessarily in terms of specific policy, but just in general at a high level, how should we be thinking about regulation today as we look at this whole digital economy thing? Well, Glenn and I spoke about this on a future tech podcast that Harbor publishes recently. And, but I, I think that, that we are exiting the trust me with your data era of of digital adoption. I also believe that if regulation is just, you know, the house of no, it'll be a colossal failure. 
I think regulation needs to be something that empowers innovation. Yes, it may limit, you know, the incumbents, the big boys, the telcos, the cloud providers, uh, the silicon providers. It may, it may handcuff, uh, their mafia move they currently have on the, on the movement of data, but it has to enable value to the consumers. If it's just the house of no, I think it'll be a colossal failure, uh, because it will start to look like other global internets that are in fact controlled by the government. And so that I, of course, would violently oppose. So I think it's got to be something that, that, that generates an economy of its own, a new economy. I would just amplify and just say that, that, um, in many respects, how people use people's data and how people can control and manage those functions is a building block that I think plays to what Doug's saying, which is top-down turn of the 19th to 20th century regulation of large monolithic industries probably doesn't translate well into this digital chapter or age we're in. And so in many respects, the modularity of regulation has to be largely driven by individuals' ability to inflict themselves on how their data gets used. How that translates to institutions and the scale of the big tech companies these days is a real head scratcher from my end. But, but, but in the end, surveillance is a runaway train that has to somehow be constrained to Doug's point, essentially constraining, you know, the innovation that could lie under this. And, you know, it's funny, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, there ain't no free lunch, right? I mean, one way or the other, you're going to pay. And you may think you're getting it for free, but you ain't getting it for free. And and I think a, a big part of this that also has to be factored in is how and who are going to educate the general population if they are given control of their data, if they are, if they are basically now under a new regime that says you have total control over how your data is used, how do we do that? Right. I mean, that's rhetorical, but I think that's going to be, that's going to be a big factor that plays into this as well. The cynic in me today, when you've got 40, 50% of the U.S. population that's, that's saying they're not going to get a vaccine, you know, empowering them with, with data privacy <laughs> seems a little far fetched. So I, I think it's going to be driven by, by the money by the entrepreneurs, by the ideas, you know, we see the uptake of, of apps like TikTok and Clubhouse, you know, things that go from being nothing to unicorns uh, overnight. It's because that that content is is being contextualized and delivered to the consumers in a new way. Now, there's all sorts of of, of traps and and you know uh, issues to discuss in that, but you know, these aren't the incumbents the incumbents that are creating this. In fact, the incumbents are rapidly trying to come up with competing products and rip them off, right? So uh, I, I do think it's going to be innovation that drives it. I'm just going to circle back and, you know, put a, uh, you know, tie the bow on that, on that point of view. I mean, the other, the other dimension to this is if, if we are building an invisible economy and a huge number of transactions and interactions are going to be run by algorithms and all sorts of interesting models and so forth, I think will displace a lot of jobs. And I think the uh, displacement in this chapter will change from the way we've thought about this in the past. And I think this will shift to a distrib- you know, really to a distribution of wealth question time as that gets better understood by, by society at large. And as that occurs, I think that will also have huge impacts on the way people think about regulating and just as many traps as there are opportunities to encourage innovation. Yeah, <laughs> that's certainly true. <laughs> Listening to both of you, I'm reminded, I, I used to say that I could probably get grant money to study 
the humor that you find on cubicle walls in corporations is an indicator of the overall health of the organization. You know, when, when people are pissed off at management, the humor tends to get snarky and vice versa. And I remember one sign that I saw one time, and Doug, this goes back to your comment about vaccinations. It said, it's a well-known fact that the total amount of intelligence in the universe is a constant. However, the population is growing. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, it's a little scary. <laughs> so let's turn our attention now to something uh, a little bit different. And that is uh, as a couple of people who are ankle deep, knee deep, thigh deep, whatever in the world of technology here and its implications on society. I want to talk a little bit about what I like to call the myths and legends of new technology, because there are many misconceptions about what all these new technologies are, what they're going to do for us. You know, if you believe certain types of news, we all now know that COVID was actually created by 5G. I'm, I just love that one because who knew, you know, I mean, technology is powerful, but I had no idea. Anyway, there are three in particular that I want to focus on. I want to focus on 5G because it's getting a lot of hype these days. I want to talk a little bit about the Internet of Things because I think it's gotten so much hype that people have lost track of what it actually is. And then I want to talk about something that I know is near and dear to your hearts, which is the whole cloud versus fog versus edge versus, I don't know, vapor thing and, and kind of what that really means and what the true implications of it are. So let's start with 5G. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to toggle back and forth um, between you guys, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of carry this on as a conversation. Doug, you want to kick it off and just what I really, I don't care about what 5G is because I think everybody kind of knows that, you know, it's just, you know, fast connectivity. But let's talk a little bit about the myths and legends around it from your perspective, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, going back to my days of participating in the, in the development of 1G, Right. <laughs> I think that I sit here today and I look at a phone that is a 5G phone in a market that claims to have 5G and I'm running on 3G on my personal device. Uh, I think it's just the it, it's a natural phenomena for, you know, respectfully, those that are purchasing the spectrum and deploying the infrastructure to take the maximum amount of marketing hype and put it against the topic. You know, I don't, I don't fault them for that. But the reality is that they're already working on this system will constantly upgrade. Before we have 5G, we'll be, we'll be hyping 6G. And so for me, it's as it relates to your question of IoT, 5G can only compete in the connectivity of things, mesh networks, et cetera, edge computing, if it can compete with free. Uh, and being able to network things through low power networks, et cetera. You don't need 5G to create a smart city. You do not. You don't need 5G to, to enable a factory. Yes, there are certain applications that you can show off 5G if, in fact, it is 5G and you can depend on that backhaul. But make no mistake, 5G is backhaul. And lots of things can happen at the edge on a peer-to-peer -peer basis that don't depend at all on backhaul. You know, we have a case of a remote vineyard of 50 miles from the Mexican border that doesn't use a backhaul at all to run the vineyard. It only uses it to share data with the cloud-based environment for remote access. That's it. So it's a fully automated autonomous vineyard that does not use a backhaul source in any way, shape, or form. It's not dependent. 
Same with as Glenn, you should, I'm sure, talk more accurately than me on factories. You know, the notion that a factory will be dependent on backhaul network. That's, that's a, that's a long, that's a long putt, right? Factory automation. So, um, so I think what it, what it isn't, it, it is, it isn't, it isn't the hype that we're hearing. It's understandable that they hype it, but 5G is not the hype. And so what I would, what I would say to, to all consumers is just consumer beware. That, and that's, yeah, that's absolutely right, right? I mean, I mean, 5G is fine. Uh, you know, it's fine. But I think we have the problem right now, and, and Glenn, maybe you can speak to this, is that there's a little bit of bait and switch going on. I mean, not literally per se, but, you know, as we all know, 5G comes in sort of two flavors. And you got a choice. You can have very high bandwidth, but very short distance, or you can have, you know, reasonable bandwidth, sort of at Wi-Fi levels, and you can go long distances. But to listen to the hype, that difference between the two is being a little bit overlooked in terms of the messaging that's going out to the public. Everybody thinks they're going to get 10 gig and they can wander around in the Mojave Desert and enjoy two-second downloads of feature-length 8K movies. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, there's really three parallel paths going on there. There's the, the traditional broadband consumer device, well, yippee, how much speed and how responsive I get to, but that being quite different latency issues. And, and then that being, I think, considerably different than particularly in a B2B context, 5G's ability to act as a kind of a, an overlay to pre-existing conditions and networks, you know, something like a port or an airport, railroad station, things in the, uh, the smart city kind of context. There's a lot of value in being able to knit together all these uh, siloed systems that I don't think has even really been in the mainstream hype on the whole story, but but I agree strongly, Steve. <laughs> Nobody really knows what they're talking about in the context of of those those dimensions. I'd say the other piece of this is, I mean, it's interesting because this is kind of the first time we've sort of broken up the uh, carrier monopolies because of the uh, advent of private now LTE, but but on the five G networks and. The fact that you can have other entities delivering that value, I think, opens up a whole new realm of at least potential innovation around how these networks can be applied in a huge number of areas. I often think that the largest constraint on innovation as it relates to cellular are the carriers themselves. They have the hardest time trying to imagine all the different things they can really do with this. And they're so protective of their profit models that, that you know, I think it's essentially blind. It's a little bit like they're the vision impaired in the story in terms of innovation. And so, yes, to your broad point, I think people don't really understand that there are trade-offs between how this gets applied that I don't think anybody's really talking about. Second is I think there's a lot more, the plus is I think there's a lot more room for innovation and new players entering the space and acting as network providers in ways that we haven't seen before. And three, I think there's a lot of interweaving and leverage of, of existing network value that, that, that it can provide. But to Doug's point, I think the economics of all of this and, and, and the use cases are all quite different because if we really are entering the chapter of distributed, true distributed kind of computing. It's traditional backhaul role is kind of someplace between moderately to significantly altered. Yeah, Steve, if I may, I'd love, I'd love to ask you and Glenn a question. I'm going to spin this around a bit. You know, Steve, you, you know, you humbly don't, uh, don't advertise the number of books that you've written on networking. Uh, some have been in numerous reprints and I'd love for you to guys to call me crazy. But as we, 
the confluence between distributed computation, the advancement in network capabilities broadly from low power to 5G and 6G and 7G. What strikes me is that with the, with the infill of 5G, um, you probably know the right number, but I've, I've heard anywhere from 10 to 1 infill because, you know, 5G needs a higher concentration of radios. It seems to me that the golden opportunity would be, in fact, to, to dovetail the deployment of 5G with a computational network of nodes. If left to their own, these are going to be dumb, dumb nodes that are radios. What if, in fact, the, the folks deploying, whether they're private or telcos, actually thought of each point each radio as a computational node and not simply a 5G radio. Um, and I'm going to just flash that back to you. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're describing, you're describing a pretty revolutionary shift, not only in the network itself and its overall, I don't want to say architecture necessarily, but the thinking or functionality behind each of the nodes. And of course the thinking of the organizations behind them. It's, been well understood for a very long time that the closer you put the point of contact within the network between the user and the network connectivity point, the closer you put that to the user, the more configurability, the more customizability, the more capability you have in terms of raising the level of the customer's experience and their ability to do with it what they want to do. I think one of the challenges that we face within the traditional telco domain that we're dealing with here is that a lot of these organizations think about mass delivery of a very limited number of products as opposed to delivery of a large number of what are perceived to be highly customized products. And I don't think that's necessarily true because the fact is that if you really go out there and analyze, and any number of studies have shown this, if you really analyze what people are looking for from the relationship that they have between, for example, their mobile device and the network that they connect to, it's a really small number of things that vary. I mean, they're, you know, some of them want gaming, some of them want media, some of them want to talk on the phone, some of them want to be able to implement business applications. But it's, you know, N is less than 10. It's not huge numbers of, of customizable things that have to be done to, that will, in fact, put a huge amount of, of pressure on the network or the people that are having to run the network and customize its output to those people. So I think it's really more of a thinking issue, a perception issue, a philosophical issue than it is a technological one. Um, many years ago, back in 2000, a book came out uh, by a guy named, I believe his name was Phil Evans, and the book was called Blown to Bits. And there was a quote at the beginning of one of the chapters in that book that hit me like a, like a hot poker in the forehead, and I've never forgotten it. He said, far more dangerous than legacy assets is a legacy mindset. And he was talking about the evolution that was going on at the time from the sort of traditional telco network economy to what was rapidly becoming this unknown internet economy. I mean, in 2000, the big bubble uh, hadn't collapsed yet. We hadn't seen all the fallout from the nuclear winter that followed the demise of so many companies and the loss of trillions of dollars in market value. And so it, everybody was still kind of in heady times and feeling really good about this. But these two, these two authors, Evans and Worcester, um, were very quick to say, you know, buyer beware. 
be really careful here in the way you're thinking, because if you really want to get value out of this, you're going to have to change the way you think about this. This is a whole different ball game now. And the traditional carriers, the legacy players are no longer in charge. The market is. And the more they fight it, the more they try to maintain control, as opposed to giving up control to gain influence with those customers, the longer they resist that, the more they're going to entrench themselves as dinosaurs and legacy thinkers. And it serves no one's interest, theirs or the customers or the advances in invention and innovation and so on that you both have been talking about for so long. I think that's the danger that we face. I think that's the challenge that we confront right now. Now, the question is, when you look at this triad of interesting technologies of the whole cloud edge, whatever you want to call it, world, the hosted, the hosted capability world, uh, the shared capability world, the shared cost world. And then you look at, at high-speed connectivity, whether it's 5G or some other version of connectivity, and you look at Internet of Things, these sensors that allow us to generate large amounts of data in response to some kind of a stimulus. Those three together represent an enormous opportunity for not just simple application capability, but insights, decision-making, uh, when we start to combine all this with things like AI and machine learning and potentially robotics, we're talking about building a technology-centric infrastructure or ecosystem that I believe is going to fundamentally redefine work. I think it's going to fundamentally change the way companies operate, the way they think about management, the way they structure themselves, uh, where their employees are. Uh, how they are rewarded and retained and and motivated and assessed and hired and so on. And and I don't think very many companies, especially the legacy players, are thinking about that. I don't think they're there yet. I'll shut up now and turn this back to the other two here for something that actually makes sense. Well, I, I actually agree with that. <laughs> I think even amidst all the hype around 5G, we're like at risk of kind of implementing a 2015 vision if we're lucky by 2025. I mean, the way I've always looked at this is from an architectural standpoint, Doug, your question is really, re, you know, it's coming back and redressing the question of what's comms, what's compute, how do these things find their way into various apps and use cases. And we've gotten to a set of Lego blocks now that in theory we could reconfigure and whether I'm trying to save money, be more efficient, increase performance, or, or inform any of the things that Steve just highlighted that will change the nature of the way business gets conducted. Basically, we're at the mercy of three, I think, three fundamental architects and all of their training and culture, um, also to echo Steve's point, I think traps them in you know, paradigms and contexts and way of thinking about innovation that tends to limit. And so... You know, if it's the IT crowd, they live in a batched world. They don't really live in a real-time, stateful, uh, deterministic world. They think they can collect data from the last three weeks and predict the next three weeks out of the soup stock pot that they put it all in. Well, you, this, both of your reactions causes me to tell you another story, uh, and this one will have to be anonymized. But sitting with one of the venture firms for one of the world's largest cable companies, and we showed them, I'll, I'll keep this the abbreviated version, but we showed them the ability to contextualize both the cable box and the home router and deliver the context associated with user watching behavior, content usage behavior, and including parallel things like I'm on Twitter while I'm watching Game of Thrones. And uh, we showed them how to do that technically. 
And the senior venture executives of this cable company looked at us and goes, why would we want to do that? Amazon has already won the home with the Alexa. You know, you guys know me. I wanted to drop an F-bomb, right? <laughs> but, but, but I didn't. I literally, I, I, I was unable to react that one of the largest cable companies in the world, and this is, this is a few years ago, had said that the home has been lost to Amazon Alexa, to a consumer device, which is dependent upon their network to have any value at all to the consumer. That was the mindset. So I think what you both described, back to your question, Steve, is which company can think differently? And oh, by the way, which, which, and I'll ask both Glenn and Steve, which can think like a software company? Okay, Steve, I'll stop hijacking your podcast and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll become a participant again. <laughs> Somehow I doubt that, Doug, but that's okay. Shepard <laughs> <laughs> <Definitely> concur. <laughs> now, now. Oh, come on. It was an easy job. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I want to, I want to ask a really simple question because again, this is one of those things that has become part of the common lexicon. And yet I think very few people know what I'm about to add, know the answer to what I'm about to ask. And most people wouldn't know one of these things if they tripped over it. So there's a great deal of discussion these days about the so-called internet of things, which has also become the internet of everything and whatever. I mean, pick a, pick a term, right? Um, for the, purposes of our audience, for those who may not know, um, Doug, I'll ask you this first. What's a thing? Yeah, for us, a thing is any bit of content, any signal uh, being released from a sensor, any data repository is a state machine. It is a thing. And so for us, our definition is really very broad. It's anything that's requiring contextualization as part of a peer-to-peer transaction or a system of transactions. So a thing is whatever we choose it to be that would add value to the system. Okay. Give me an example of that. So you've got a situation here. You know, when I, when I think of, uh, when I think of an IOT device, uh, you know, an IOT sensor, um, the way I often describe it when I'm talking to non-technical audiences, it's, um, imagine that it's a, it's just a digital mouth. Okay. Like ear, ear, eyes, nose, mouth. It's a digital mouth. We're going to, we're going to, tickle its tongue with a feather and it's going to puke. And when it pukes, what comes out is data. So in response to some kind of a triggering event, it spews data, which is the only thing it really knows how to do. And that data, of course, becomes the raw material for what many of the applications and capabilities that you two gentlemen, you know, work on um, become a reality. So in that context, when we start to look at this, give me an example, Doug, of a of a like a real situation where kind of soup to nuts, how you go from raw data or trigger to raw data to contextualization to some sort of monetizable or societally changing kind of event. Yeah, we, you know, not to be too quick to answer, but the, the, the answer that I'll give you first is first, we need to understand the resolution that we need to change the business or the application that we're working on. You know, what do we need to know to, to truly understand that system? And that system can't have missing actors because if it has missing actors, then, of course, we can't automate the system. We'd have to leave in the manual processes, go out and check the thing, right, to use your question. So our, the first thing that we look at is what's the level of re- resolution? You know, if you if you capture a piece of data off of a thing, 
but you don't know that the thing is in a critical error state or about to die, well, then your system is incomplete. We had a case recently where we've been uh, concerned about the age of a computational gateway. Sure enough, as we started worrying about it, that gateway died. Now, looking back, we did not have analytics running on memory and power and other things associated with that gateway to proactively tell us. There's just intuition that told us that gateway would die. What I would say the definition is, what's the level, the resolution that you need to change your business model or add significant enough business value to the use case, right? That's the level of resolution you need. Anything short of that, you're going to have to keep in a parallel manual system. But I also think what's really missing, Steve, is, is the lack of collaboration between the ecosystem. For this to happen, people are going to have to play nice together to use Glenn's use case about the patient in an ambulance. Think about how many different incumbents or players would be involved in that single transaction of proactively providing a hospital with information about a patient in transit to the hospital. You know, your, your head might blow up if you really diagram that out, right? And today, you know, with the exception of some point solutions and a proof of concepts, you know, that collaboration is not happening, which takes me back to the very early question about that, you know, that that consumer economy, Steve, is where the innovation needs to happen, right? Who needs to benefit from that? The wiring that's there, but the lack of collaboration is that patient in transit, right? <laughs> They're the product. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Doug. And you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, at, at the risk of, at the risk of sounding like a digital version of Bernie Sanders here. Uh, I'm not even <laughs> going to try to do that Brooklyn accent, but, but, you know, there's a certain amount from a data perspective of I've got mine. Now you go get yours. And that doesn't serve, right? I mean, today data really is becoming the kind of the coin of the realm in a lot of ways. The difference between hoarding it. And controlling it for personal, not personal, but for monetization purposes at the, at the, at the risk of putting everybody else in danger financially versus sharing the data widely, you know, making it a, a, a universally available thing with all, you know, again, with privacy and confidentiality taken into account. The ability to use the data as the connectivity between all these disparate ecosystems and subsystems, Glenn, that you referred to, I mean, to me, that is a fundamental game changer in terms of revenue opportunities, business models, innovation, invention, positioning, moving forward, getting past so many of the barriers that we have you know, in place today. And, you know, I just, I'm, I just kind of wonder out loud here what it's going to take to get us there. What's it going to take to get companies to say, you know what, I'm willing to share. And again, don't take the fact that I'm in Vermont into account with this comment, but for the greater good, and I'm talking about the economic greater good for everybody, all companies, what is it going to take to get us there? How are we going to get companies to share? Well, I think it's, we got to get rid of the hogs get fed and pigs get slaughtered mindset, right, is, you know, if we were all willing to give the victory of all of this to Facebook, this would be done already, which comes back to your regulatory question. But the reality is that that, that lack of consortium then means you put the ethics of that transaction, in, in, in this case, because of the preferred stock, in one man's hands, right? So I think it really comes back to collaboration, Steve, and People that see the explosion of applications and innovation and want to share in that 
versus block it ever happening. I, I do believe that we're getting closer to um, some sort of renewed recognition of, of, of the value of, of these kinds of systems being being sustainable. <laughs> so much like, you know, I you know, obviously go back in the history of the EU, they've had the report in annual reports for years about sustainability and it's kind of a cheap answer. But I, I think to some extent, as soon as the uh, CFO world is, has to sign a document at the end of the year, this is the Sarbanes-Oxley kind of play on data sharing, just like somebody would have to think about what they've done to contribute to sustainability. I, I think to some extent, you're eventually going to need some sort of metric for openness and uh, interrelatedness as it relates to data and relationships within ecosystems. There, it has to be something that somebody can measure before somebody can actually, I think, enable it. But, but I think we're getting closer. I agree. And I, and I agree with your COVID comment. We're, we're having conversations that, that frankly shock me. Um, and it comes from fear, you know, that holy shit moment of a global pandemic. But um, we're having conversations that, you know, pre-COVID, you know, even though we could imagine that type of resolution of a system, you know, forget the type of business, uh, certainly the business owners couldn't. You know, why would we do that when we just stick a human to stand there and watch people walking through a door? Yeah. Um, so uh, I think the conversations are, to Glenn's point, optimistic point. <laughs> I do think that uh, those conversations are happening, and the pandemic is certainly uh, catalytic. One of the people I'm working with has a really interesting kind of mantra that he chants pretty regularly, where he says that what part of what has to happen as we move into this digital world where we're trying to balance the human and the digital as a way to create a superset of capability and forward motion is that he says, I, I believe that, and this, this ties into your comment about optimism, Glenn. He says, I believe that we're moving from a world dominated by command and control to a world that's dominated by communicate and collaborate. And I hope he's right. I mean, I, that, that's certainly the direction we have to go. And, you know, any reasonably sophisticated, well-informed person in the world of business will look at that and say, communicating and collaborating with my peers, my managers, my subordinates, my suppliers, even my competitors doesn't put me at risk. In fact, it does quite the opposite. From their mouths to, to my ears. I mean, we've certainly bet on that, Steve. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.